Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Whole Oil Podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies to make a difference in the social impact world. My name is Carisha Martinez, one of the senior marketing associates here at Whole Whale, and your host for today's show. Thanks for listening. Today on the pod, we have Dan Treglia, associate professor of practice at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, glad to have you back on the show, Dan. Yeah, good to see you again. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Awesome. So last time you were on the show, or at least the last time I interviewed you, we talked about um, homelessness at the very beginning of COVID-19 and how the pandemic has really, how the beginning of the pandemic has had an impact on the homeless population. Um, And so we're going to have you back today to talk about something that's happening in San Francisco um, regarding the homeless population there too. So can you give us a little insight into what's happening and hopefully give people Um, a summary of kind of what's going on in San Francisco these days. Sure. So I think let's start off by talking generally about about what COVID-19 has meant for the homeless population and and homeless services. So as I said a year ago, and this remains pretty true, that generally speaking, there are no good COVID-19 options for people experiencing homelessness. Uh, I mean, that's becoming less true as a result of some pretty stellar interventions. But generally, you have your choice. You would have your choice of going into a congregate shelter where you're in a place with, you know, in a room with five or 10 other people. And, you know, that's not good on a good day. And during COVID-19, that's absolutely not acceptable and not safe. Or you would remain unsheltered, meaning you're sleeping on the streets or in a park or you know, subway train or some other place not meant for human habitation. And for them, right, they may have a little bit uh, kind of more separation from people, but they would have fewer connection to services. They don't know, you know where they're going to get their next meal from. They may not have access to medical care, showers, things like that. Um, that has, in many ways, I don't want to say been ameliorated, but Certainly, people have been working to improve the situation for people experiencing homelessness in the years since, which has been crucial. So uh, about a year ago, about the last time we spoke, uh, some colleagues and I had published a report saying that, you know, without any intervention, we could see upwards of 3,000 people dying as a result of of the coronavirus, given, you know, expected uh, infection rates and what we thought would be susceptibility to the, to the virus among this highly vulnerable population. Um, luckily, we have not seen that level of, of destruction and death. And it is um, because you know, communities and the federal government have in some ways stepped up um, mm-hmm. to move people out of shelters into hotels um, and into permanent housing options. Um, and one of the interventions is one that we'll talk about a little bit today, which is um, the safe sleeping sites in, in San Francisco. Um, now, kind of more broadly, we don't fully know the kind of the extent of the impact of COVID-19 on the homeless population. And that's one question that I and I know others get asked a lot. Um, there's one group tracking this, and they found 373 COVID-19 related deaths. Um, from 18 communities, cities, and counties, that is almost certainly an understatement Mm -hmm. given a lack of reporting um, by many other communities. Um, And given what we have also seen as an excess number of deaths in the homeless population, especially those sleeping outside. 
Um, and one thing that we're worried about coming out from the winter mm-hmm. is that people that could not get into shelters because shelters were trying to keep their population small um, and there were not always alternate accommodations for them were sometimes sleeping outside on the street. Um, and given that this was a very cold winter on the East Coast with a lot of snow and precipitation, we are certainly worried that when we look at these numbers down the line, we're going to see that we had a lot more deaths this year than we had in other years. And at the same time, you have an opioid epidemic that is occurring. And while that's not the kind of the pandemic du jour of kind of our attention, um, it is one that, you know, we need to pay attention to and one which is certainly um, causing the loss of additional life. Yeah. Definitely. Right. And we, we kind of touched on this again in our last episode. If you haven't heard it, um, you should go give it a listen. I think it's a good uh, precursor to this conversation. And one thing that we really talked about was kind of how it's not particularly safe, especially in the midst of the pandemic, um, to kind of have these mass people in these shelters. Um, there's really, it's hard to have six feet apart. At the time, masks were pretty scarce. Um, and it just wasn't generally a safe kind of environment, at least in terms of um, not catching the coronavirus, really. Um, and so these things have kind of been, like you said, Dan, have been in the works and governments and organizations have stepped up a bit. Um, and one thing that, again, is kind of particularly interesting are these safe sleeping sites that are popping up. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of your thoughts on it? So I will preface this by saying I'm not an expert on San Francisco homelessness specifically, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly I know quite a bit about kind of the world of homelessness generally and have been keeping up on, on what's been, been going on uh, mm-hmm. in San Francisco. And so... One thing that's important to note about about San Francisco homelessness Mm -hmm. is that about two thirds of people that are homeless in San Francisco are what we call unsheltered, meaning they're sleeping Mm -hmm. on the streets or other public places. They're not in shelters, Mm -hmm. um, which is a contrast to a place like New York, where it's about 5%, for example. Mm -hmm. The public homelessness and unsheltered homelessness um, is a kind of significant problem um, for many of the reasons that I mentioned before, kind of irregardless of, of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. These are people that are in desperate need of housing and healthcare and COVID added a whole other dimension to that. Um, and so at the outset of uh, the pandemic, San Francisco, like many other places, were looking to essentially shed shelter beds and because they didn't want congregate settings, you know, for very good reason. And they weren't sure exactly how they were going to facilitate that. Um, There had been discussions of using larger spaces like gymnasiums and other things and keeping those beds six feet apart. But that still, we've seen that that has not been successful. Uh, We've seen that once the coronavirus gets into one of those settings, uh, it spreads very quickly. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always get there, but when it does, it spreads as quickly there as it does in any congregate shelter, it seems. Um, And so one of the options that San Francisco has opted for um, is what I'm gonna call sanctioned encampments, which are groups of tents. And generally if you're in San Francisco or Los Angeles or other places with lots of unsheltered homelessness, Seattle's another one, um, you're familiar with the concept of encampments, which are essentially groups of, of tents or other makeshift outdoor shelters that are sometimes 
devoid of services or any contact with homeless service providers or healthcare providers um, and, okay, and sometimes get torn down by mm -hmm. the local municipality um, for safety reasons, for health reasons, um, or just because you know, the local mayor wants to show that they're taking down homelessness and doesn't want these unsightly things in otherwise pretty places. Mm -hmm. um, well, the CDC has actively discouraged the taking down of, of those kinds of facilities, of those kinds of, of, of encampments. So what San Francisco has done is created these, what I'm calling sanctioned, not sanctioned as in you're not allowed to have them, but sanctioned as in, you know, they are supervised and managed by the government sets of encampments um, on, uh, I think, generally speaking, public property. I'm not entirely sure about that, um, where everyone is in their own tent or maybe they're a household, they're sharing a tent, um, but everyone keeps six feet apart and they have access um, to... Uh, food, to showers, to uh, bathroom, um, and to caseworkers and to healthcare services. Mm. Um, and they are screened for their temperature um, before entering the, before entering, uh, the, the, the facility. I mean, it's often in parking lots and things like that, but it's a facility for those purposes. Mm -hmm. um, and in that way, it keeps people safe. It is certainly not an ideal solution for any number of reasons. Um, and San Francisco, to be fair, is also using hotel rooms. And FEMA, um, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, is putting is reimbursing communities that are putting people into hotels um, because those are non-congregate settings. But I'm not sure why. I think there was some speculation within San Francisco that they thought that these kinds of settings would be FEMA reimbursable. They are not. Um, and so San Francisco, out of its own pocket, has spent about $16.1 million to support 262 tents. I know that number, and I might be preempting your question here, but you you decided to interview a professor, and therefore I just go on a diatribe. Um, go ahead. <laughs> we, we could just monologue this. Um, I, I know a lot of, uh, a lot has been made out of that $16.1 million number, and that Sixty-one thousand number, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think it's important to be clear, like how those, how that number was, what was included in that number, mm -hmm. and how that sixty-one thousand number is calculated. So, I think first of all, we should be clear that exactly what goes into that sixteen point one million number is not entirely clear, but it certainly includes a lot. It's not just tents. It's not just setting up those tents. Mm. It is to pay the caseworkers, to pay the medical professionals that are there, the people serving serving the food, perhaps security, you know, the trailers that are supporting the personnel there, mm -hmm. uh, the food itself, the medical supplies themselves. The There are platforms that all the tents are on to protect them from any weather, right? If the ground gets wet, um, you don't want the tents on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so there are platforms that the tents are on. It goes to that. The fencing mm -hmm. around these, you know, encampments, these facilities are all rented. So that goes into it. Um, I think like some of the, uh, some of the, fi right, those are all kind of operating costs. Right. I think there are also some fixed costs that went into this about mm -hmm. how do we address this solution? And that also went into it. 
So that 61,000 number is, I think, A, inflated, just mm-hmm. as a function of including those fixed costs, and B, includes far more than I think most people give it credit for. Now, it's still a high number, right? It is still a very high number. Mm-hmm. Um, there are problems that there were, there were thoughts it would be fewer, fewer reimbursable and that it's not. That's a, a miscommunication somewhere. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I think exactly what that operating cost is, is still TBD. So like when we speak of, in, in the San Francisco, San Francisco Chronicle article, um, they, the authors gave a comparison to the cost of the hotels, right. which are, so the tens are $190 a night. You know, if you, if you break that $61,000 down um, per night, it's $190 a night, which is $82 less than the hotel rooms. But those hotel room costs also don't include the fixed costs, right? No one's thinking about the capital required to build the hotel. Right. So it's not exactly an apples to apples comparison and it's an unfair apples to oranges comparison. So I would say, yeah, the number is high, but it's still more digging is required. Yeah. And that's kind of what these headlines kind of sensationalize, right? It's not necessarily kind of the things that are included. It's more about that price, 61,000 per tenth of this 6 million, whatever budget. Um, but they are providing a lot, right? Like you said, they're providing like meals, they're providing access to bathrooms and things like that. So I'm wondering where you see the pros and cons of these kind of encampments. Um, Cause people are kind of having a lot of different feelings about them, right? Like a lot of cost versus maybe uh, more amenities included in those things. Um, so how do you kind of feel? Do you think they're effective? So I think, I mean, it's hard to tell whether or not they're effective. And when you're asking the question, are they effective? That Then you ask kind of effective at doing what? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a road we can go down. Um, I think they're expensive. Mm-hmm. Now, exactly how expensive they are, I don't know. I can't tell you because I haven't seen the raw data. I can't tell you the, the numbers. Um, certainly $61,000 is an inflated number. And of course, that's a number that's in a headline because... No newspaper has ever lost money, you know, bashing spending by local governments. You know, I don't, I don't think it's low and they're not an ideal solution, right? They are the solution that has been favored by the federal government and by local homeless service providers is to put people into hotels, right? Those are non-congregate settings where services can still be delivered and people can be monitored and casework can be provided. And you're seeing that happen across the country. There's no question that in a choice between putting someone in a tent or putting someone in a hotel, you opt to put someone in a hotel Mm -hmm. for any number of reasons. It's indoors, it's safer. Uh, From a financial perspective, it would be reimbursed by FEMA, Mm -hmm. you know, 100%. Those are all important things to remember. At the same time, from a harm reduction perspective, this is pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So again, there's a question of would people be willing, are all of these people, people that would have gone into hotels or permanent housing, but didn't have the capacity, but there wasn't the capacity. I think if that capacity is there, right, you want to put people in there, but mm-hmm. people may be hesitant. I, I, I don't know. I heard I haven't spoken to any of the folks here, but people may be hesitant um, to seek kind of new housing. And generally that's not true, but sometimes it is. And that's important to remember. 
but this is a good solution for people who, um, a good temporary solution for people who want to kind of remain in that general setting, mm-hmm. uh, but suddenly they're gaining healthcare, they're gaining food, they're gaining some security. If you read some of the articles, I think certainly the San Francisco Chronicle article, you see a, an important perspective from the people experiencing homelessness themselves about how in many ways this is a godsend for them because people were having things lost and stolen um, all the time and that's suddenly not happening. Um, people don't have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from, whether they can see a caseworker. All of those amenities are there. Can they see a doctor? All of those amenities are there. Um, they know that there's COVID screening happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, this may be a more secure environment than some of these people have had in a long time. Yeah. So like you said, definitely a step up from maybe where other people were, um, not in these encampments. But again, I agree. I think it is a temporary solution, right? If we have places, rooms, real buildings, instead of having people stay in tents, even if they are encamped, even if they are uh, having security, even if they are having all of these different kind of services provided to them, um, I would agree. I think it is more of a temporary solution there. Now, I want to say, kind of, you would hope it's temporary for a person. Right. But that's also not an argument that this that these should be dismantled. Mm. You know, at the end of COVID, because it is providing valuable services mm-hmm. for people that are on the streets and for people who were dispersed all over the city or all over sections of the city and were not accessible to caseworkers and healthcare providers before. So there is value here. Now, there's a question about value at what cost, mm. and that's you know a, a question beyond the data that I have and you know, the scope of this interview. I think you bring up a good kind of point, right? Like, I think these tents, at least stated in the San Francisco Chronicle article that we're kind of referencing, is also good in terms of the pandemic, right? We talked about kind of having the struggle of keeping people six feet six feet apart, sharing rooms, um, and how that kind of relates also to lowered numbers of people in shelters. Um, so whether they should be kind of dismantled at the end of the pandemic, I'm not too sure. I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that as well. Uh, I mean, I think I was speaking to that a, a little bit before and you know, all things being equal, I would not wanna see something like this dismantled because I do think mm-hmm. it is providing a valuable service for people that need these resources. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I don't want people to stay in these encampments, right? I would hope to see people moving into, you know, hotels, permanent housing, more secure areas um, and more secure settings, you know, indoor settings. Right. But for people that are on the streets, this is so much better mm-hmm. than what you're seeing, than, than what you'd be seeing otherwise. Now, these are not cheap as certainly, you know, headlines have made clear. Now, exactly what that cost is on an ongoing basis, um, that I can't tell you. Now, some of these resources would be administered, you know, anyway, caseworkers already exist. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some of their work becomes a little bit more efficient because you're not going chasing people, you know, they're all in, in one or a few places, right? You may even see um, savings on a healthcare perspective because suddenly 
people have access, may have access to a healthcare professional, you know, where they're sleeping or, or, or nearby, but in a much more coordinated way than they would if they were sleeping, you know, on, on a random corner somewhere. And so maybe they're going to the emergency room less. Maybe they're spending less time in the hospital. Now, again, I don't have the evidence on that, but I wouldn't want to overlook that. And I think even beyond the financial costs and savings is just the agency given to a person and the security and sense of self given to a person. This is, like I said, these are the most kind of secure settings that some of these people have slept in in a long time. Now, I don't know how you value that in a cost benefit analysis, but it has to be worth something. For sure. I'm, if we're going back to this kind of $61,000 per tent at face value, I'm wondering how you think in your own like opinion, professional and well-educated opinion on this topic, how you would spend that money in a different way if you could, like in an ideal world. You'd want to spend that money on permanent housing options and on more secure indoor housing options for, uh, and, and even temporary indoor housing options for after the pandemic. Now, again, there may be people that are unwilling to accept options given to them that might be more secure. And right, so I'd, I wouldn't want to kind of take all those dollars and, and bring them over. Um, but, you know, certainly, you know, housing vouchers or the building of, of you know, real housing opportunities for people experiencing homelessness should be a priority. You know, that's going to be a better use of $61,000 um, than, you know, th- th- than the tents. Yeah, there, there's, no, there's no question about it. This is a second choice. Right. But for, for those for whom there, that is all there is, it's far preferable to the alternatives. Definitely. Yeah, it does sound like there's kind of this push and pull. It kind of reminds me of like, in theory versus in practice. Like in theory, this isn't really like the most sustainable idea, but in practice, it's really great for people who maybe didn't have these services before. Um, yeah, and I, I know that uh, San Francisco, I think had a $650 million budget shortfall. Mm-hmm. And so a program that costs $16.1 million that goes above and beyond you know, existing contracts is not, is not sustainable. Now, again, some of that's going to include, I think some of that w- does include uh, fixed costs, you know, for setting up the tent, these, these tents and these facilities in the first place, right? Those are already spent. Right. So take that out of the 16.1 million number and that 61,000 number. And so the operating cost of, on a per tent basis becomes quite a bit lower. And that also is going to change based on the size of each, you know, in, you know, encampment or a safe sleeping site. Um, Cause you may only need one trailer or two trailers per site, whether you have, you know, 10 tents there or 40 tents there. So that's going to change the per tent cost. Um, but again, regardless investments in permanent housing and the supportive services that go along with it are, you know, how we would all want to see uh, the money spent and also might be good ways to leverage uh, existing resources from state and federal dollars. Right, right, definitely. I mean, I think this will be an ongoing problem and conversation, especially as, you know, vaccines come out and uh, we kind of experience a new sort of reality with COVID as it relates to being vaccinated. Um, but we really appreciate your expertise here, um, especially as it relates to 
already how the homeless population is being impacted by COVID and then also um, giving some opinions here. Yeah. And let me, let me say one more thing to that, which is, you know, if the, 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 the safe sleeping sites are often kind of contraposed with, you know, hotels that are being mm-hmm. reimbursed by, by, by FEMA. Um, and again, something I, I want to say is where those are options, those are certainly preferable. And whether that's from a financial perspective or just from a um, perspective of getting people indoors and which allows them to situate themselves a little bit better and take care of, of other needs. Those could be behavioral health issues, physical health issues, whatever, you know, those are always preferable, but you know, I, again, where, where, where those aren't options, this is, this is preferable to the, to, to the alternative of having people kind of just sleeping, you know, on random corners throughout the city. Yeah. And then potentially being forced to move from these corners and finding new places to stay. Exactly. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you again for sharing your expertise. Um, I'm sure I'll have you back on the podcast to talk even more about this as things change and evolve. Um, But where can people find you? Sure. So I do have a website, which I update about once every nine years, (laughs) uh, which is just my name. It's dantragalia.com. And so you can learn a little bit about me. I think I might even have a picture of adorable children on there. They are my children. Um, (laughs) So, you know, Come, you know, come to see pictures of adorable children, stay for learning about social policy issues. If that isn't the worst sales pitch, I don't know what is. Yeah, dantraglia.com is where people can find me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I said, if you wanna get a master's degree at the University of Pennsylvania, let me know. Awesome, thanks again, Dan. All right, take care. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 